ask you something that is kind of bold. Um, but God, we ask that as we read this story that is words on a page, um, it's about you and you really existed and you really lived and you really died and you really rose again and you are alive and your, your spirit, your presence is here. And God, the thing I'm asking is that tonight you would just present yourself to us in a way that is clear and compelling and real. And God, maybe some of us who've like heard the story of the cross our whole lives, like for the very first time, it would be like we're, we're actually seeing it with like real eyes. And so God, I pray that you would just like show up tonight. Show us who you are. So conversations with Jesus, okay? Same series, but it's an interesting night because we've been watching Jesus talk with all different kinds of people, right? A bunch of different conversations, a bunch of different like types of people having conversations with them, but tonight is the night in the story when Jesus is silent. He's not gonna speak to us with his voice. He's gonna speak to us with his crucified Body and, and I think that it is actually when Jesus' lungs finally, when they finally depress for that last time, I think that it's in the silence and the stillness that follows the last breaths of the man on the cross. I think that it's actually these moments when we can hear him speak the loudest and the clearest. And I actually think it's in this, like, this moment that we're going to come face to face with when like, the, Jesus is not just on the cross, he's not just suffering on the cross, but he actually is dead on the cross. The reason I think it's in the silence that he speaks the loudest and clearest is because it's in this silence that we find ourselves like, it, what, the only thing I can describe it is like the crossroads of reality. It's like this fork in the road that you get to on your journey through life where you meet Jesus. And it's this crossroads. And so that really is what John intends to do with us. That's why his book basically gets to this point and then it like just ends really fast because he's like, I want you to just kind of, even as you sit with your Bible, you know, it's only like a chapter after this, you kind of finish it and you're just kind of sitting there and you're like in this quiet of even like finishing his book. He, he means for there to be a response in our lives. And so this is the conversation Jesus wants to have with us tonight. Chapter 18, verse 1 of John. Says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, so this is right after last week, right? John 17, this kind of prayer where he's giving this kind of window into like God's heart for us. He's praying to his father. It's right after he'd spoken these words, he went out his disciples across the brick, across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, he also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured this kind of band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. There's this kind of assault on Jesus, right? Like the time has come. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now Judas, who, was, who had betrayed him, was standing with him. But when Jesus said, I am he, it says they drew back and they fell to the ground. Guys, it's a super cool moment. And this isn't even like the main part of the sermon, but guys, this is amazing. It's like 
This is a man whose life is not being taken from him. This is a man who's laying down his life. It's like in this moment, it's like, even when he just says like, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, I am he. It's like the power of his voice and his name literally causes these people to literally like fall down backwards and like get on the ground before him. And it's like in this moment, you're seeing like, yes, I am Jesus and I'm gonna go to the cross as a lamb, but make no mistake, I am a lion. Don't misunderstand what's happening here. Well, I'm gonna be led to the slaughter and I'm gonna be given a crown of thorns and my throne in this part of the story is going to be a cross. There is coming a day when Jesus, when God, my father will bestow on me the name I already have, but he's gonna bestow on me this name that is the name above every single name. The name in which every single knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and in which every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he's saying, make no mistake who I am. And so these people, they're, even though they don't believe in him, their bodies intuitively bow before him when he says, yes, I am Jesus. They pick themselves up off the ground. And so he goes, okay, try again. Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, why don't you let these men go? Talking about the other disciples. And, and verse nine says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost none, right? These kind of like chosen people of God, these disciples, he's like keeping them safe, right? And then Simon Peter has a sword. And so he pulls it out in this moment. He's like, no, that's not gonna happen. He draws it out and he strikes the high priest servant and cuts off his ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, isn't that really weird that it gives you like the name of the high priest? I think that's weird, right? You're like, why? This story is going so well. Why do you like stop it in parentheses? Like, by the way, the dude's name was Malchus. It's because like this really happened. <laughs> like this really happened. And there's really a guy walking around who's like, you know, like had an ear. And in other stories we see that Jesus like puts the ear back on, like whoop, he does that. And so like there's a guy who's like, yeah, like I was there. That happened. And his name is Malchus and you can go find him and talk to him, right? So the gospels are always doing this. Like literally just kind of this old way of doing a footnote saying, this is historical, go and check the work. Go find Malchus, he'll tell you how it happened. So Peter cuts off this dude's ear. Verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? So we're seeing that Jesus is not his life's not being taken from him, but also this is happening according to the will of his father. It's the father's cup that the father is giving to him. He's saying, shall I not actually follow through with this according to plan? And so from this moment on, we actually see Jesus kind of willfully putting his life in the hands of these men. They'll hold a false trial for him. They will mock and spit on him. They'll, they'll hit him in the face. They're gonna beat him. And eventually they're gonna to get to a point where they're having this kind of false trial. We don't have time to read all of it tonight, but you can kind of read it. It's kind of through the rest of, of, of chapter kind of 18 and getting into 19 here. And basically there's this moment where like, they're basically like inflicting as much punishment and pain on them that they can with the level of authority they have. And they can't go any further because they don't have the authority to kill them because they're under Roman rule. And so they take him to the Romans and they eventually take him to a man named Pontius Pilate, who's basically like the ruler kind of over this area of the time. He's kind of this Roman kind of ruler. And basically saying, hey, we don't have the authority to crucify this person, but you do. And so we're bringing him to you saying he has offended us. He has broken all these religious laws and observances. He's this horrible person who's making everything hard for us. So you need to crucify him. They take him to Pontius Pilate. So in verse 33, it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called to Jesus 
And he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? And Pilate answered, well, am I a Jew? No, your own nation, your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is it? And after he'd said this, he kind of goes back outside to the Jews and he told them, I, I find no guilt in him. But you have this custom and I'm, I should release one man kind of to all of you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Like he's here, he's kind of, you know, what about releasing him? But they cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas is a robber. They're saying, give us this guy instead. So chapter 19 starts. Then Pilate, after this, they kind of reject Jesus he took Jesus and it says it, he flogged him. Now we, we read these like short sentences here, right? But like people who are reading this in the first century, like they know what it means to be flogged and whipped. And it's, it's not something we have any kind of experience with at all, okay? To take like one of these whips and to whip someone one time with it would cause like severe damage to the back and to their arms and shoulders and the back of their legs. Like damage that you can't really like walk away from. It's like severe. And that'd be from one whip because these whips are brutal instruments of torture. And so Jesus is whipped in the other gospels we know 39 times. It's basically like one time less than like the maximum amount you can give to someone but you basically assume they're gonna die if you go more. So when it just reads the line and then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, we're supposed to kind of read into that. This was brutal and excruciating. And it took a really long time. And after this, in verse two, it says that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And so Pilate went out again to see this, the crowd and he said, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I don't find any guilt in him. So Jesus came out in front of everyone wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Behold the man. And this is like John, as he's writing the story, what he's He's doing with this phrase, because like Pilate says this to the crowd, but what John is doing is he's trying to get you as the reader to like actually stop and consider this scene. Like behold this man, look at him, take this scene seriously. And it's like in that moment, it's like John as he's writing this, like he, he's thinking through like what this was like to, to remember this and to view this and to understand this. And he's like saying like, behold this man, like look at his head. Like, look at the lines of blood that, that run down his legs. Look at his eyes. Swollen, bruised, closed shut from repeated blows to the face from all these different people. 
encrusted in blood from the crown of thorns. It was pressed into his head. So you have these like streaks of blood. They're like filling his eyes. And it's like he's saying, look at his back. Like behold this man. Look at his back. The whips the Romans used were tied with pieces of metal and bone. So as soon as they stick into the skin, when you pull them out again, they rip chunks and ribbons of flesh with them. Look at him. He's wearing this purple robe of mockery and scorn. Crown of thorns crushed onto his head. Look at his body shake uncontrollably as the shock starts to set into his system from how much blood he's lost and how much physical pain he's in. And Pilate stands this man in front of this crowd and he just says, behold him. Look at him. But then look what happens, verse six. Then the chief priests and the officers saw him So they behold this Jesus, this likely shaking, bleeding, bruised Jesus. And when they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. But the Jews answered him and said, we have a law. And according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. We know what he's claiming. It's ridiculous. It's heretical. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was actually even more afraid. Pilate has this weird understanding. He's weirded out by this Jesus because he's looking at him and he's like, this is like someone who's like actually innocent. Like I'm talking with him and I recognize like the people out there, like they are wrong. And this dude is like, weirdly pure and innocent. And so Pilate is like freaked out. And so they're saying that he claims to be the son of God. And so he goes back in, he entered his headquarters again and said to him, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you, over to you, he's the one who actually has the greater sin. He's talking about the Jews outside. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate's kind of freaked out by Jesus. He's like, I don't know what is going on here. I just don't want your blood on my hands. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Right? They appeal to his boss. They're like, if you release Jesus, you're not Caesar's friend because everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate hears these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour. That's a random thing to include in the story, right? Why does he say that? Well, it's because this is the time of day where all the people kind of in the surrounding areas are beginning the preparation where they're going to slaughter the lambs for Passover. And it's at this point in time, about the sixth hour, 
Pilate says to the Jews, behold your king. Not just the man, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And so Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is the word Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and just over the cross, over this man who's being crucified, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Pilate would write it in all these different languages so everyone who comes up and sees this, they know what it says. This is the King who's on the cross. We have one line here, verse 18, and it says, there they crucified him. And it's a lot like the line where it says that they flogged him, right? Where it's like, if you live in the first century, like you populate this line with all kinds of like visions, like you've been to crucifixions, you've, been, you've smelled what they smell like in the crowd, like you've heard the wails of people on the cross. But we live in this time like thousands of years later where we don't, like we read that and we're like, that sounds really hard, that sounds really bad. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just explain what crucifixion is so that when we read these lines and when we think about something as central as the cross of Jesus Christ, we kind of have some idea of what we're talking about. So crucifixion, it was reserved for only the absolute worst criminals. It's, it's not the normal way you'd punish someone. It wasn't the normal way you'd, you'd kill someone. It's actually like reserved for just like the worst of the worst, like people who are like kind of below society. It was meant to be this like absolute degradation and humiliation like this graphic and hideous display of the vileness of the one on the cross. And so many scholars consider crucifixion to be the most painful and the most horrific punishment that humanity has yet devised. It's actually from the word crucifixion that we get our word like excruciating, right? It's like if you have pain, it's like, is it one to 10? And you're like, it's not 10, it's beyond that, it's excruciating, right? During crucifixion, what would happen at the beginning is the body would be stripped naked completely. You know, the pictures that we have of Jesus on the cross, he ha he's always covered, right? Because it's like, it's too, like the real thing is like too shameful for us to even like understand or embrace. And so we like, we like cover him up in our imagination and we cover him up in our pictures and our paintings. But Jesus would have been stripped completely naked, exposed so that he could be mocked and scorned by everyone. And then what would happen is the person would be thrown down onto the horizontal beam of the cross. And what would happen is a group of soldiers would hold down each arm, would pin it to the wooden beam. And as they pin the arm to the beam, nine inch long nails would be driven through the flesh of the arms that would basically pin the body to the cross. And if the nails were through the, the hands, the problem with that is that as you get lifted into the cross, the weight of your body would basically pull the nail through the soft flesh of your hand and you just, it would rip through and you'd fall off. And so what they would do is they would actually put the nail right through the bones of the wrist, right where like the wrist bones meet with the hand bones and basically it would go right through what's called the median nerve, 
which is this like main nerve bundle that reaches to your hands. And so as this nail goes through, it would be unbelievably painful. And then what they would do is they would take the bones of the heel and the foot and they would do the same process there, pinning the person to the cross. And as the cross was lifted into the air, the weight of the body would begin to bear down on these points. And the iron would begin pressing kind of through flesh till it eventually finds the solidity of bone. And in the end, the full weight of the body would basically just be hanging on the skeletal structure of the body. And in this position of excruciating pain, death would not come quickly, but actually would come slowly, often over hours or days. The cross was not designed to kill quickly. It was designed to torture. It was designed to humiliate. It was designed to desecrate the one on it. And so normally you wouldn't die from blood loss. You wouldn't even die from trauma, but basically the way they designed it is so that you would slowly suffocate to death. And so to breathe in, like the diaphragm has to move down. That's how you breathe in. And this, this opens up and enlarges like the chest cavity so the air can kind of enter into the lungs. And to exhale, you have to kind of rise up, which like forces the air out. And so on the cross, the weight of the body, what happens is it pulls down on the diaphragm, keeping air in the lungs. And because of the position of your legs and your arms and your chest, in order to exhale, the body has to be lifted up by the legs. And so you have to stand up on your bones, on the nails that are holding you to the cross in order to get a breath. And so every single breath brings with it tremendous pain. And over time, normally over hours and days, as the legs weaken, the full body would begin to hang from the pins that are in the arms and the wrist. And so your whole body would start to hang on the bones of your arms and under this weight, eventually the elbows would dislocate and eventually your shoulders would dislocate. And the weight of the body would eventually stretch the arms six to seven inches longer. So most of the pictures that we have of Jesus on the cross, right, like he, he, looks, he looks good. But actually like what would happen is his arms would be up here and his body would be sunk down and his arms would literally be like disconnected from his body. He would very like not even look like a human being at this point. And as the body deforms, the chest cavity drops and so each breath becomes more and more labored, only achieved through significant physical exertion and agonizing pain. And eventually through this process over hours and hours, the body is emptied of all strength and life. And as the figure slowly becomes less and less recognizable as the body of a human being, the one on the cross would draw in one last breath with no more ability to stand up and expel it from their lungs and they would suffocate. That's what it means when it says in verse 18, and then they crucified him. And may I humbly suggest that if the cross feels familiar to you, if the crucifixion of Jesus feels normal or routine or just kind of like part of the story you know, it feels known to you, 
then the reason you feel that way is likely not because you're just so acquainted with it, but actually it probably feels familiar precisely because you know almost nothing about it at all. It's like a building that we pass by every day on our way to class, right? And it's like we, you pass by it and, and you, you see it, and so it feels known to us, right? But you've never stopped and stared at it you can't remember how many doors it has on the front. Like you actually have almost no knowledge about this building at all. It's completely abstract. It remains unknown to you. But because you pass by it every day, it feels known to you. It feels familiar. And I think the cross can be like this, where we're like, I know Jesus was crucified, but it's like that building you walk by every day, and it's like, you, you know this. But John doesn't want this to be familiar. And he doesn't want us to understand this in the abstract. He wants us to behold it. He wants us to stare at the man on the cross until staring at this picture actually changes our lives. And every single gospel, it gives you like a different vantage point into the scene, right? They're all a little different. Like they're, they're kind of pulling from different words that he said on the cross. Like he said a bunch of different things. And so each gospel is just like kind of giving their own vantage point on what happened. But where John wants to end, the last thing he wants us to hear before the, the silence is two things that Jesus says. The last thing John wants us to hear ringing in our ears when the silence fills the void. Verse 28, it just says after this, Jesus has been on the cross for a long time now. Knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there and so they take a sponge, they dip it in the sour wine, and then they put on a hyssop branch and they hold it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So these two words that he's like, these two phrases, he's like putting in our mind, like right as it, like he gives up his spirit and it's just quiet. It's silent. But like the two things he says before that are meant to like help us understand what is happening on this cross because Jesus says like, I thirst, right? And it's basically like, we've been talking about this a lot at Salkin, right? Jesus, like he satisfies our thirst. He satisfies our hunger. And so part of what you see happening on the cross is basically Jesus is like experiencing this like thirst of like this void of being disconnected from God. Right? It's like the thing we feel in our sin where we're like trying over and over again to like find fulfillment and joy and we just end up thirsty in the end. It's like Jesus, the one person who's been always satisfied. On the cross, he's like, I feel what you feel. I'm thirsty. But then the thing that he gets is not satisfaction, but he gets sour wine. What is that? Well, it's literally what he said earlier to Peter, right? When Peter cuts off the dude's ear, he's saying like, would you keep me from drinking the cup my father has given me to drink? He's saying I'm thirsty and then he gets wine. He gets this, this it's, it's like, it's a cup of wine, but it's sour. And like as kind of the whole like Old Testament leads forward, it keeps talking about this idea that there's this cup of God that's called the cup of God's wrath. And the cup of God's wrath is basically like this image of like this goblet of the wrath of God, the justice of God over people's sin. And it is not a cup you want to drink because it's desolation and pain and horror. 
It's the truest form of cosmic justice against human sin. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm thirsty, and the thing he gets to drink is sour wine, what John is trying to tell you is he's saying, what Jesus is doing on the cross is not just physical pain. He isn't just dying. He is drinking the cup of the wrath of God in our place. That's what the cross is. It's not just a physical punishment, it is a cosmic spiritual punishment. And it is brutal and it is horrible. And so what's happening in that moment is Jesus is taking the cup of God's wrath and then right after he drinks that, he says it is finished. It's finished. And then there's silence. He doesn't breathe anymore. He gives up his spirit. And then you are just looking at the body, the dead body of a crucified man hanging on a cross. The cross teaches us so much. Like I, I had like 20 pages of notes and I had like throw most of them out because <laughs> I didn't have half the time. But one of the things that the cross does is it teaches us about our sin. It teaches us about our sin. And you know, sometimes if you've been coming to Salt for a while, we basically say like, hey, we're not offering you religion. Like that's not what this is. Like some people call this religion because you come out of like religious backgrounds. And like sometimes we say like, well, that's not what this is, right? Now, religion says that if you want to be accepted by God, then you need to become the right kind of person, right? You need to become the right kind of person or you need to be the right kind of person. And what religion does is it gives you a path to follow to become that kind of person. It gives you like a set of commands, a philosophy, a set of ethics. It gives you a set of prayers. It might even give you like a path of wisdom to follow. But the cross of Jesus is saying something that you have to hear. Because even if you don't agree with it, you have to hear what Jesus is saying from his cross. And what the cross of Jesus is saying is that you are not the right kind of person. You're not. But you're the kind of person who's actually earned destruction and death. And more than that, the cross of Jesus is actually telling you that no matter who you are, where you fall on the spectrum from like Hitler to Gandhi, it doesn't matter. It's saying no matter who you are, you can't actually change your life to become the right kind of person. Do you know why Jesus, a few chapters earlier in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. But then he says something that's completely exclusive, right? Because there's a lot of kind of different things of like, well, there's, this is a way, this is a truth, this is a life. A lot of different paths to God, right? There's a lot of different streams all lead you back to the same ocean. Very popular idea. Jesus says, no. No, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then he says, and actually no one gets to the Father except through me. Why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus get to have an absolutely exclusive claim to be the only path to salvation? Why? It is because of the cross. 
The cross of Jesus, it stands as a full and a complete rebuke to every single other's path to spiritual enlightenment and salvation that Jesus would say masquerades in the world, but it is counterfeit, it's false, it's not real. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, not that. I'm the truth, that's false. I am life, that is a path to death. The cross of Jesus, please understand this. I don't care if you agree with it. I just want you to understand what Jesus is saying. The cross of Jesus is claiming that every single other religion is a fraud. It's a fraud. Every other path to God is a counterfeit. That is what the cross of Jesus is saying. Why? Why does the cross of Jesus make that claim? Why is Jesus so exclusive? It's because... God does not slaughter his son as one more option for salvation. That is an illogical and insane premise to hold. That there's a bunch of different paths to God and one of them involves God slaughtering the son he loves. And the others involve you following some rules. No, God does not slaughter his son if you could be saved by having more good works than bad in the end. And it's the scale. And if you have more good than bad, then you'll be saved. If that is actually a scenario that's real, then God does not become a human being and put himself on a cross so he can bleed out and die in order to save you. What God does is say, work a little harder. You can do it. Jesus doesn't say that. God does not slaughter his son if you could be saved through some other religious philosophy or way of life. He does not slaughter his son as one of the many ways you could find spiritual healing and connection with God. He slaughters his son because of one reason. Because without his perfect spotless sacrifice and without his perfect blood being shed over your life as a sacrifice for sin, Every single human being faces only one sure and guaranteed end of their story. Separation from God. Hell. The thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place called Gehenna where fires continue over and over and over again. And you might think about that and you say, well, that's just a metaphor Jesus uses. That's fine. If that's the metaphor, it's not a reality you want. And so Jesus is saying, that is the absolute guaranteed end of every single person's story, unless I become a human being, I become humiliated, I get flogged, I get spit on, and I would actually be nailed to a cross. And slowly over hours I would bleed out and I would suffocate and I would die. The only way that possibly happens the only way that's ever one of the stories in our reality is if it is the absolute and only possible way human beings could be saved. And it is. The whole story of the Bible says that. What the cross of Jesus tells us is that our sin is more serious than we could possibly imagine. 
And then the corruption and evil within us is it infected us to the core of who we are. And it's that actually like we're not, we're irredeemable through systems of change or programs or philosophies or ideas. We're irredeemable through those kinds of things. And that actually the only solution, the only healing that is powerful enough for us is the healing that only Jesus himself can purchase because it's going to cost something as valuable as his life. So the cross of Jesus tells us about our sin, but also tells us about our Savior. Look at this. This is, to me, the most scandalous and incredible thing. Do you know what Jesus is screaming to us in the silence of this moment? Like, it's incredible. Like, his silence, his lifeless, crucified body is telling you that even though your sin is greater than you can bear, and even though, like, you have failed to be anything God had wanted you to be, I'm including myself in this. Even though you deserve the cup of the wrath of God to sweep over and destroy your life, when God looks at you, despite all of that, he loves you. This is what's so stunning about this entire story. If you would stand on stage and have your heart laid bare, everything that's true of you, every single lust-filled thought, every greedy ambition, every lie, every one-night stand, every perverse sex fantasy you've ever had in your head that you are way too embarrassed and way too ashamed of to ever tell anyone about, every selfish thought, every arrogant word, every moment of anger and hatred, every moment of kind of comparison or desire for other people to be less beautiful or not as good so that you can feel better about yourself. If your entire broken sin which is unfolded on this stage for everyone to see so that the darkest corners of your heart were laid bare. And the question of everyone was, who wants this one? Who wants this one? What would people say? If, if you saw the dark corners of my heart the sin, the greed, the lust, the evil, like the, just the darkest corners of my heart, if my heart was laid bare for you, none of you in this room would be able to handle it. You would be disgusted by it. I'm disgusted by it. And it's my own stuff. And so if you were up here and you were laid bare and all of your failures and flaws and sin and even the things that like you've even hidden from yourself because you can't handle it, but you know it's in you. If that was all laid bare, and the question was asked, who wants this one? If that question rang out, what would happen is Jesus Christ would walk to the stage and he would say, I do. I want that one. I want him, I want her. And if that happened, if he came up and said, I want this one, there'd be some other person here who would be like, you don't understand. Trust me, you don't. You don't want this one. Do you see who they've been with? Do you see what they've used their eyes to look at? Do you see the way their heart and their mind and their body has been deformed and degraded by sin all these years? Do you see what their greed and the pride in their heart has done to them? Do you see how little of them is actually left because sin has eaten so much away of their life? Jesus would say, yeah, I see their past, I see their future. I see through every part of them. I know them better than they know themselves and I want them. I'm sorry, but this one is too far gone. Jesus would say, what is the cost? Well, you don't understand. They, they deserve death. They're on death row. They can't be saved. It would cost too much. What is the cost? 
just move on. There's no possible way to, what is the cost? Okay, Jesus, you want to know the cost? Fine. You would have to become exactly as they are. Not only as they are, but you would have to become the tortured future reality that they will become because of their sin. You would have to become hollowed out and degraded and destroyed from the inside out. Your father would have to turn his back on you because you would become unworthy of his family. You would lose all of your wealth. It would cost you your home. You would have to exchange your crown of glory for a crown of thorns. You would have to exchange your throne for a cross. It would cost you everything. You would have to drink the cup of God's wrath that has been stored up for them, and you would have to drink drink all of it, every last drop, by swallowing it up in your body and soul, you can't pay the cost because it would cost you your life. On the cross, as this man breathes his last, in the darkness and in the silence of that moment, we behold the most stunning and incomprehensible moment in the story of the world. That God, when he knew what it would cost him to have you, when he knew the cost he would have to pay for your redemption and salvation and forgiveness and recreation, In the silence of that moment, you can understand, he said yes. He paid the cost. Jesus said yes to the cross so that he could save you. And it's not because of you, it's because of him. It had nothing to do with you and everything to do with him because that's who God is. That's what he is like. That's his heart, that's his love. If you want to know what God is like, then the loudest and clearest place that you can hear about him, it is here. It's in the silence, it's in the quiet. As the son of God no longer speaks, but his body is slowly taken off the cross, they don't, even, they don't even say Jesus anymore. They just say his body, his body, his body. They'll eventually lay it in a tomb. And the story actually ends really fast after that. There's still a couple more weeks of salt. There's some more things that happen. But basically the story, like, the next morning you wake up, Jesus, like, you know, like three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. He's not dead anymore. Spoiler alert. But he rises from the dead. He talks to his disciples. He, kind of, he has these conversations, has a bunch of these things. But then he's just gone and the story's over. And it's like, as, you, as, you're sitting, as you're sitting there at the end of the story, like it is powerful. But it also gets silent really fast. Because like when Jesus dies and he rises again, all of a sudden like the story just kind of ends. And you're just like, you just literally are sitting there with your Bible. I was sitting there this week and it was just like, I turned the page, you turn the page and then it's just, it's over. And you're just sitting there with this story of Jesus. And I think the reason that the story ends so fast 
is because this story demands a response. It's the kind of like weighty reality moment where you, you can't just be like, that was really interesting. And like, that, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna like think about that. Or like, that might be something I wanna add into my life, but it's like, no, this is a story about God slaughtering his son because it was the only possible way that you could receive salvation. There's a Scottish pastor, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, so I'm not going to. But this is what he says. He says, God has laid Christ across the path of humanity on its course to the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed. One for salvation, the other for destruction. You cannot simply step over Jesus and go on about the daily routines and pass by him to build a future. He says, whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. One either sees him and becomes joined to him and changed forever, or it is like as though you stumble over him, and in your stumbling, you find yourself stumbling to destruction. This story of Jesus on the cross, it demands a response. Let me tell you the worst possible way you could respond to this. The worst possible way. The worst way you could respond to the cross of Jesus is to look at it and be like, that's like kind of, that's like, that's nice. That is a nice thing Jesus did. Or another worst way you could respond to the cross of Jesus, you could be like, that is such a kind, nice thing Jesus did. I wanna figure out how I can include that into some of my life plans and some of the dreams I kind of have for my life. I think I might wanna include Jesus into some of that. No, the cross of Jesus is offensive. It's telling you that what Jesus went through on the cross was what you deserve. That's an offensive message, unless it's true. And so I think there's only two possible ways you can respond to the cross of Jesus. One is you hear this message and you get offended. You're like that person that stumbles over him, like he's an offense to you. The fact that he would look at your life and say, you deserve to drink the cup of the wrath of God. You deserve destruction, that's your life. That's actually a perfectly legitimate way to respond to this if you don't believe it's true. But if you believe this is true and God has slaughtered his son for your sins and that on the cross he has said it is finished and it really is, then the only possible response that has any level of logic or rationality in it at all is actually to completely abandon whatever your life was about and to fall down at the feet of this crucified savior and say, I want to give the rest of my life for whatever you would use me for. There is no middle ground. Jesus actually says that in Revelation. He says, I I would rather you be hot or cold, like reject me or give all of yourself to me but do not be this middle ground, lukewarm Christian because that actually means you haven't understood the cross at all. At least the people who are rejecting me, they understand it, they don't believe it. But if you just sit and you're kind of this lukewarm, like I'm gonna include Jesus into my plans, Jesus is like, that's the most offensive thing you could possibly do in light of what I did for you. It means you haven't even looked at it for a second. Jesus Christ on the cross died for you in your place. 
He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you do not have to. And he said, it is finished, which means there is nothing more for you to do. You cannot add a single thing to the sacrifice of Jesus. Even if you work the entire rest of your life to like give all your money away and do everything, you can't add anything because the blood of Jesus has made you perfectly spotless and righteous before God, your father. It is finished, it is done, it is over with. But because of that, we now need to respond to that. You can't keep going in your life. You can't keep going in the same direction. This is a fork in the road. Reject Jesus, toss him aside, be offended, or give him everything. But do not look at Jesus and pat him on the back and say, thanks, that's a really nice thing you did for me. Let's pray. Jesus, I remember when you first opened up my eyes to this. And God, I'd, I'd stared at the cross my whole life and I just didn't care. I didn't get it. It was so familiar to me. But God, you did something in my life when you just like, you, you opened up your word. It was on a salt coming out. It was just like this and you just opened up your word and you just showed me who Jesus was in a way that was not abstract. It wasn't distant. Jesus wasn't dying for the sins of the world, but he was dying for my sins. And Jesus, I remember meeting you that night. I remember being overwhelmed. And I'm still overwhelmed. Jesus, you are amazing. And we love you. And God, for the people who are in this room, that the cross is familiar to them. It's a story they've heard, but it's a story that's never changed their life. God, I just pray that tonight, that you as the slaughtered lamb of God, you would just show up and they'd see you. And in seeing you, they'd be changed. God, would you teach us individually in our own lives? What does it look like to respond to what you've done? In your name, amen. We're gonna do a little bit of a different worship set at the end of this. We wanna give you guys space and time to, to behold this king who didn't win a war through power and might but he won it through the cost of his blood. And he was inviting you to follow him. So Jesse's gonna sing a hymn over us. You can join in if you want. You can just sit and contemplate and think. There's gonna be some verses that are gonna come up on the screen. There's gonna be some shepherding. It's gonna be a little different. But in all of this, just behold Jesus. Ask him to show himself to you. And ask him that when you see him, it would change your life.